1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Sashnik.
0: And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the Mile High Sale sports business podcast, The Sportacast.
1: All right. I like it. You went a little obvious, Mile High. I mean, everybody knows what it's about. But it works on two ways,
0: because the sale price, if the Denver Broncos sell, Scott, is also going to be mile high.
1: I would say it'd be two or three miles high. <laughs> that that <laughs> might be one of those, you know, uh, Everest high. Yeah. By the way, hat backwards today. I, and of course, this is audio. Maybe we'll include a little <laughs> promo clip on the Twitter. Maybe Cora Veltman can get that going for us. What's with the hat backwards? That, that's not an everyday look for Evan Novi Williams. Uh, it's
0: kind of standard in the office here. Yeah.
1: Not, not on on podcast day. It's <laughs> Maybe not, not on podcast
0: it, days. I'm dressing down today. I'm
1: excited. Good. That's normally me. All right, but let's talk about the dressing up of the Denver Broncos. We got to put the lipstick on the asset that may be for sale. Story we broke. Um, the trust for the ownership of the Denver Broncos of the Denver Broncos has uh, begun the process of interviewing sell side banks. Uh, there have been whispers, there have been pointings, there's been maybes, but Eben, this is the clearest indication to date that we have gotten that the Denver Broncos will be sold. Uh, and leave the Bolin family.
0: It is. And and for people who are kind of a little confused about who owns the Denver Broncos right now, I'll take a quick stab in in maybe two or three sentences of trying to sum up exactly where we are right take
1: now. Take four or five. It's a, <laughs> it's a complex situation. Don't rush it.
0: Pat Bolin owned the Broncos for a very long time. Um, he has been battling over the past decade or so, battering, battling Alzheimer's. In 2009, he set up a trust that would handle an estate, his estate, which included the team in the event of his death, About five years later, he stepped away from his kind of day-to-day ownership operations of the team, put the trust in charge, and then in 2019, he passed away from complications due to Alzheimer's. Now, this three-person trust, in the event of his death, is responsible for naming the next owner of the team. And essentially, they were looking at his seven siblings to see if one of them could both rise up to be the owner and also could convince the rest of the siblings uh, to back that that sibling uh, to be the, the owner. And in the event that that does not happen, the trust also has the authority to sell the team. Right now, we are in a position where the trust has had a year and a half. There were some lawsuits that needed to be dropped and settled. We're getting towards the end of those. It seems as though Pat Boland's seven siblings cannot come to a conclusion on which of them is going to be the principal owner of the team. And in that scenario, the trust is going to sell the team. And Scott, as you said, the, 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 the trust, the team, starting to interview bankers, certainly seems as though the end result here is that someone whose last name is not Bolin ends up owning this team after the offseason.
1: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Novi Williams. Now, I know the dynamics of the Novi Williams family. <laughs> you know... I won't get into specifics. You know the dynamics of the Sashnik family. Would, would you ever set up a trust where seven people in the Novi Williams clan sitting around a table had to agree... <laughs> <laughs> on something like who will be the next owner of Novi Williams Inc. I, I I just don't understand the process by which they went through this. If it's if the process is main is is the main goal is to uh, let's get some clarity and to ensure a smooth transition. It just didn't seem to be set up in a way where the process would be easy. Um, and, and, and Pat,
0: before he died, didn't never seem to, at least publicly or, or in any of the proceedings that have come out afterwards, never seemed to give an indication of which way he was leaning. If he felt like any one of his siblings was a better choice to to run the yeah. organization, he does not seem to have. Made an indication in that regard at all, which is certainly further complicating where things are right now.
1: And there, there were certain things that benchmarks that had to be met for the person that would emerge as the you know whether it be a law degree or an MBA. You know those steps were taken by one of the daughters, and you can just feel the acrimony here. And it's not it's not anything new. We've seen this in the past in fighting among families uh, trying to wrestle for uh, for control of of a professional sports team. Uh, the Saints comes to mind, but th- this anyway let 's focus on looking ahead. we don 't know the banks that were, that were interviewed. You and I can make some guesses, uh, but what we do know is that the Nets uh, and the Barkley Center were three point something billion. The last NFL team to trade were the Charlotte Panthers, and you know not too many people showed up there. the Carolina Panthers, sorry. And David Tepper wound up buying the team for about $2 billion. So, with this team, this market, this time, new media deal, the NFL seemingly just printing money with whatever it seems to do, we're talking what, four plus billion at least? And you know that's where Kurt Bottenhausen uh, pegged them in, in the latest Sportico valuations, but we're going to get a real test. And I, this was my favorite line in, in the story that we wrote: that this sale will be a litmus test for the power of the NFL. Why don't you explain?
0: Yeah, so you're right. We we valued the the, the Broncos at three point eight billion dollars to, to put a bow on this. If if the Broncos sell, they will sell for the highest price that the world has ever seen for, for a for a sports team. Um, that that seems unequivocally true. If it's 3.8, if it's 4.1, whatever it is, anything over 3.3, which was that Nets and Barclays center sale that you're referring to when, when Joe Tsai consolidated his ownership, um, this is going to be a record. Uh, and as we talk about numbers that big, Scott, uh, there's not there's a, there's a small amount of people that have the ability to cut that check. Um, so we're you know kind of running told up- me, let me Wait, let me jump Go in. Ahead. You know what else
1: this yeah. tells me? The fact that they're interviewing folks? That Jeff Bezos has passed on the Denver hmm. Broncos. You That's think what else it tells be, me. You don't need a banker wants, if Jeff Bezos is interested? If Jeff Bezos was interested, let's make this easy, fine. Make us a fair offer. But we know Jeff Bezos was looking at the Washington football team. You have to think that someday the, the uh, Paul Allen Trust, his sister will sell... The Seattle Seahawks, perhaps that's what he's waiting for. But it tells me that the logical buyer of at least somebody we we think we know was on the runway and would certainly be like plane number one for takeoff um, that he has told the NFL and, and the folks that possibly would sell the team. I'm not interested. Look elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's right. And and you can have a group of with multiple people. But as you know, Scott, the NFL has, I think, the strictest rules of any of the major sports in terms of what you need to have concerning a, a primary owner, how much money that man or woman needs
1: to put down. It's a big check. Even for a billionaire, it's a big check. It's a, yeah. it's a big
0: check. So the NFL, its valuations are soaring higher and higher. Great. But it's also running into this idea that the higher your valuations go, the smaller the pool of potential buyers uh, interested or not goes. And, and I think when you say litmus test, that's the that's the question. It's that as as franchises get more and more valuable, and not only are NFL f- controlling stake sales rare, we've only seen two in the last nine years. It was the Bills in 2014 and then the Panthers, which you mentioned in 2018. Not only is it rare, but it's also rare to have a team... That is kind of in the upper half of, of NFL valuations or right around the midpoint. Usually the teams that sell are the teams kind of towards the bottom. We talked about this recently when the Penguins sold vis-a-vis the rest of the NHL sales recently. But not only is this a rare NFL team to hit the market, if it does, it is also a, an extremely valuable franchise within the NFL ecosystem, which is also rare on top of the initial rarity.
1: Yep. That's a lot of rare right there. That's <laughs> a lot of <laughs> but, rare. I know. <laughs> that was Well, that wasn't too rare. Um, and you know who's sitting back smiling, you know, who doesn't want Peyton Manning in their group? And you wonder- Most in demand. At, yeah. yeah at, a, at a time like this, that gravitas that he brings, you wonder, is there a Peyton Manning discount? This reminds me of the the sale of the Dodgers when Magic Johnson- he, he was the one who sat and interviewed the bidders. He let the money people come to him. Normally, it's the other way. Amazing. If you have the money, you do the interviewing, right? But coming off sort of that tenure, uh, it, things weren't so good with the Dodgers. Uh, folks were angry with Frank McCourt. They were very happy for a new ownership group. But Magic was like, yes, I will take visitors. In, and you can tell me, why should I join your group? I get the sense it'll be the same thing with Peyton Manning. He's that kind of beloved figure uh, around the NFL especially in Denver um, and you wonder will John Elway play a role there does you know he had a chance back then to buy into the team and, and passed you know a low valuation with the the, uh, the annals of sports team purchase are littered with things like that you know examples like Larry Ellison could have had the Warriors had he raised his bid by like what 30 40 million bucks whatever it was he said no look where the Warriors are Oops. now yep so yeah Peyton Manning must be sitting back and Wondering, and and I'm sworn to secre- secrecy. I've been like I know one person at this point already who is very interested in the Broncos. This person uh, is involved in pro sports right now. Um, it, it would be sort of a collection of assets. So has the money uh, would certainly have the partners and the backing to do it. The question that you asked and that I'm really interested to see is. How many of those type folks show up uh, and make a bid because this number could go really high if it's three or four?
0: I was going to say it it feels as though the kind of the the banker and high net worth individual world has kind of been assuming that the Broncos at some point were were going to hit the market. Am I correct in thinking you just mentioned one? I would assume that there are a lot of potential bidders who are Already getting their ducks in a row. Already talking to people who might be want to be in their group. Already doing due, due some due assets. diligence. Yes. Getting their yes. cash together. Yes, all those things. I would think that the market. Um, it, it, sometimes these things kind of pop up out of nowhere, and then other times they're like the Broncos, where there's a huge runway where everybody uh, involved in this process and, and potential bidders kind of know it's going to happen ahead of time. I would think that that if this if this process were to happen formally, very quickly the people who are involved would make it clear that they have been kind of preparing for this in a, ver- in a variety of ways for a while now.
1: Yeah. And, and sort of the, uh, you know, the, the debutante ball aspect of all this is let's not walk away from like, the bankers that are interviewing. Like, I'm not really sure how you separate one from the other. Uh, my guess is these are preeminent banks. Preeminent bankers have done lots of big transactions. Maybe it's a personality fit. Maybe it's just a personal relationship. I don't know what it is. But the reason why the competition is so uh, intense is there, there are only two people who make, on the banking side anyway, who are going to make real money on this transaction. That is the person who represents the seller. And that's the obviously the, you know, the pole position because you're guaranteed to get a deal you're done. You're on cash. the sell side. <laughs> yeah. Unless they pull off the market, whatever, you're guaranteed. And then there's also the banker that represents the eventual buyer. The problem is that you have to pick a horse in that race. You know, you're handicapping. Does this person have the goods, have the will to close this deal? Because if you go through all the work with somebody who finishes in second place in the bidding and doesn't get the team, you don't make a whole lot of money. You've done a whole lot of work, but you don't make a whole lot of money. That is called in the business a success fee. You have to have the winning person. So I find it fascinating. I wonder if we could put a piece together. Uh, I don't know how many bankers would put their names on it, but sort of the process by which they weigh, mm, I've had three or four prospective bidders call me for representation. How do you, I mean, maybe it's the thickest wallet, You know, maybe it's just that, but you really have to get a feel for that person to know, are they kicking tires here? is this a passion play are when push comes to shove are they going to cut the check that gets them that team like when the mets were sold yeah you want to represent steve cohen i can tell you that right you know there were some other very qualified bidders on that deal however you know when steve cohen's involved you're like you know and, and i will also tell you there were some bankers who at the outset of that process wanted it written into contracts that, you know, cause Steve wasn't on the initial bit, you know, like, like Steve wasn't going to buy the team, or Steve couldn't buy the team, or if Steve jumps involved, then I don't, you know, I get paid whatever. Um, they, I don't think any of those those stipulations actually got written, but I can tell you people thought about it, knowing that he was just out there circling and he he had all the money in the world. And if Stevie wants it, Steve was gonna get it. And we all know how that turned out.
0: So so in your read of the Bronco situation, who has who do you think has the, the more leverage here? Do you think it's gonna be a uh, one group of uh, one group of prospective buyers that are going to be able to kind of pick from their elite bankers or do you think that that in this case the like little cadre of elite bankers are the ones that have the leverage and they're going to get to pick their horse going the other way i'm curious who you think ends up having more leverage in in, in a bronco sale process
1: yeah well you know it's so hard cuz so much of it goes down to personal relationships who have you represented before maybe on some core business aspects mm, and some other, yeah. some other deals um who is it like who is jumping in and Again, it would be a big deal for me if Jeff Bezos was involved in this transaction. And if I know Jeff Bezos was going to bid, I don't think I'd want to do a whole lot of work on behalf of anybody else. Bezos because is
0: the he, Steve Cohen in this.
1: You know, yeah, he's, he, the, he's the, there, the leader, you the obvious Bezos leader. is the Steve Cohen. If he wants it, he's going to get it. Absent Zuckerberg bidding, absent Mike Bloomberg, our former boss, and we all know Mike Bloomberg ain't buying an NFL team. You know, maybe an equestrian, a new equestrian, but it ain't going to be an NFL team. You and I know that. Um, and Elon Musk, you know, if if some of the world's richest folks, if it was more than one involved. All right, then you know, I'll pick one or the other and try and figure. But if it's sort of Bezos and if, there's the difference between you know billionaire, even two, three multi-billionaire, and Jeff Bezos. Like if he wants it, he can overpay to get the asset because that's what it's going to come down to. This is you know this is a very simple thing: pay the most and likely get the asset.
0: So last thing I'll I'll ask you on this because I, I mentioned in here, I am loving
1: that I am loving this discussion. It I, is I, I, it is
0: pretty rare that an NFL team trades on the market that there, there've yeah. been two in the past 9 years as i said you compare that to four or five mls teams in the past year at least two nba teams it, it's fairly common in other sports it's not common in the nfl um and this is going to be very expensive The last one we saw, which was David Tepper buying the Panthers, as you mentioned, 2018, uh, it was kind of a, and correct me if I'm wrong, a kind of a tepid market reaction. I think that at the end, there were not as many bid groups as maybe we would have thought, given that it's the NFL and it's rare for these things to happen. How vibrant do you think this process ends up if the Broncos hit the market? Are we looking at five or six bid groups or, or maybe more like the Panthers where we end up with one or two?
1: Yeah, you're dead on. Uh, I would say on the NFL side, there was more disappointment than anything else that there weren't more people involved that it didn't create more froth. Uh, I would guess for, for two reasons. One, the new media deals and where everything's headed. Two, look at the TV landscape this year. Just NFL absolutely dominating everything. Now you, you've, got, you've got the digitals. Do I think they're going to jump in the fangs and, and replace linear TV? No, but that's okay. Uh, the NFL looking uh, outside of borders to generate more revenue from around the world. And the biggest piece I see now is that scarcity asset. The the fact that this is, I mean, it's not the Dallas Cowboys, no, but this is a marquee brand name in the NFL. And you said normally it's lower tier teams that, that would trade. I would be surprised if there are not at least two or three people that we have seen kick tires before or own other professional sports teams trying to get into the NFL. And by the way, I will say on the record now, I do not think Michael Rubin will be among them. That's one I do not think. However, yeah. what I also love about this, he's, so, you know, he's just so busy building value on, on Fanatics. But what I also see is every single time this happens, there's a name brought up by the bankers Or at the end, like wait, who? Like I, (laughs) wait, you know, you, you and I don't know. We go look. Wait, this person's worth five and a half billion dollars, and that happens every time. I mean, every time the Marlins,
0: I remember that. Yep,
1: there's there's always people I have not heard of that, by the way, have been meeting with Roger Goodell and the NFL for the what a year or two, and and been doing some due diligence. Maybe they're an LP in in another team, and sort of that learning testing ground, and now they're ready to take that step out. So. I love this thing. I find it fascinating. And I, I can't wait to see if it if it does happen and they do hire a bank and the real process goes uh, how it turns out.
0: So I've got one. I know I said last question, but I've got one other for you. From a geographic standpoint, for a, a long time, a lot of people that were buying teams were doing so in in, in areas that were geographically relevant to them. Uh, David Tepper, I don't believe had ties to the the Charlotte area, but he was an East coast guy and Charlotte is an hour and a half hour, 20 minute private jet flight from, from New York city, uh, down to Charlotte. How much does the Denver location, which is convenient for some people and, and way less convenient if you live in New York city, how much does that kind of play into who the people are that might be interested here?
1: Yeah, obviously it, it, it's a personal thing, um, but I will tell you, and I won't name the person because it was told to me in confidence. This line, I loved it. When the Milwaukee Bucks were on the market, one of the bidders said to me, "I don't care which city, which team. Like, like it, they were absolutely brand agnostic, agnostic, totally agnostic. Of of course, uh, if you look at Milwaukee, you wound up you have a real estate play going on. So I, mean, I think opportunity agnostic. No but brand agnostic this person said to me all i want is to be able to go to the game hop on my plane and i want i don't even want to like you know tease which direction <laughs> fly home and sleep with my head on my pillow so if it was a 2 hour flight game ends at what 9:30 right Airport yeah. by 10, home by midnight, probably stay up late anyway, get yourself a nice snack, sleep with your head on your pillow. That was the, the the barometer for this particular buyer. And I would guess that scarcity of the NFL, even though we didn't see it with Tepper, I'm guessing, having seen what's happening in the NFL market, in the media world, the ability to use the NFL with other parts of businesses. I would suggest and guess that the scarcity market and all those other things will drive interest and price on this one higher.
0: So let's move from NFLs to NFTs. Um, A a recent report out by Deloitte, uh, essentially saying what I think you and I probably could have surmised, uh, sports-related NFTs are going to do more business in 2022 than they did in 2021. But the numbers here are kind of interesting. Uh, Deloitte estimated about a billion dollars. In sales for sports related NFTs in 2021, starting obviously with NBA Top Shot and the, and the Fuhrer of, of January and, and February and everything that came after, saying that that will grow from 1 billion to 2 billion next year. I don't think uh, either of us is surprised, Scott, but give me your kind of takeaway on when you hear those numbers.
1: My takeaway is that we have just scratched the surface that the NFT is simply the front porch of blockchain. Like it's one high-profile component of what can be done on the blockchain. And we are talking about transferring art ownership, the DDR home, a ticket, uh, having having an experience tied to that ticket. So uh, sports, again, is a wonderful proving ground and a great place for technological innovation. So no, not surprised that it would double at least, but... I think it's it, it's only the first component or a very very popular component of what blockchain will be utilized for. I,
0: I think that's right. And I think we've seen it even in, in, in this very short window of 2021, the progression of the hot NFT being Top Shot, which is essentially a stagnant video file of an NFT all the way through what we saw with Club Nacoxa, the, the new ownership group there down in Mexico, which sold 1% of the club via an NFT. I think, you, I think you're right. I think the NFTs that are going to be successful moving forward and the ones we're going to see more of next year are the ones that add another layer of utility. And whether that is you know, something that unlocks a, a door to get into a suite at a game, or if it's an ownership stake, or if it's uh, the ability to throw out a first pitch at a, at a Dodgers game, which the Dodgers did via an NFT earlier this year as well. I think that's the fear, that's the, or if it's a daily fantasy, you know, some, some kind of gamification like what SoRare is doing. I think there's a lot of potential options there, but I think that's the trend we're going in towards next year.
1: I love the way, like friends of the program, like but no name hello for like Sam Porter, thanks for listening, Michael Meltzer, thanks for listening. None of that, I'll take care of all that. (laughs) But I want to move on. Like we could do that forever, but I'm I'm really really interested in this last story. And as you know, I am not the biggest motorsports fan out there. I do not sit and watch the cars go round and round or or road or whatever it may be. I don't. But I'm a bit sucked in right now. And I'll tell you why. And I'm like, you know, the vast, because you've heard this before. But my wife and son were watching Netflix the other day. And they went back because they'd heard so much about it. They went to, you know, episode one, season one of the Formula One series, whatever it's named, I don't know. And man, is it good. It's really good to, to take it behind to like the people who run the pits. Um, one of the teams, I forgot which team it was, but, you know, they, they were, it was the American team that was like headed for its best finish. And they had a couple of new people on the That's pits Haas. and they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, Haas. Okay. And they, and and they didn't put a tire on. So one guy pulls out, you know, out of the race. And then the next guy pits, same thing. Like right. And to see just the anguish and then to see the phone call to the team owner and, and you know, you're really focusing on personalities and storytelling. The backdrop just happens to be Formula One racing, which is pretty darn nice when you're in places like Monaco, right? So anyway, set it up. The audience in the U.S. has gone bonkers because of this, this Netflix series that's great and the big stars. And it was fun to see season one where Max Verstappen wasn't the star of his team. They were like, oh, the up and comer, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> now he is no the star. <laughs> I mean, this is a perfect setup. You're going into the final race of the year. And it's, it's a point system as you go along, of course. And you've got Lewis Hamilton, winner of what? How many? like nine championships, right? Oh, no, seven. He's got seven. He's tied with Michael Schumacher. So you have Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen with the exact number of points headed into the final race in Abu Dhabi. That is some compelling stuff. I might, like. If, well, I'm actually, I'm going to be stuck in a hockey rink somewhere, I think in Merrimack College, by the way. So I don't think I'll have my phone out watching this, but I'll be monitoring what goes on because in all likelihood, although there is a little wrinkle, In all likelihood, (laughs) whoever finishes higher in this race takes the title.
0: Yeah, it almost feels like, as a comparison, the nineteen ninety eight home run race where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were going back and forth the entire year. It kind of went down right to the wire, as if like if if the Cubs and 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 Cardinals could have played against each other in the final game with them both tied at sixty five or whatever it was. That's kind of the drama that it feels like this whole season has been building up to. F one is not. It's funny. There's not a lot of competitive balance in F one. You kind of know who the winner or the winners are going to be in a given, in in a given race. But this is the way you get kind of year end drama in some ways at the top, right? As if the two kind of heavy favorites, the best cars and best drivers, most likely if they just end up tied, this is the way that you get this drama. Cause it, it seems as though, and I'm not an expert, but it does seem as though a lot of the kind of who is going to win F1 drama gets sucked out of the circuit at some point during the year, most years. Yeah, there
1: was a great line in that opening episode of the first season. I believe that's what we were watching. I wasn't in control of the remote. But one of the, one of the people said like, oh, how many people are on your team? I think they were talking to the Haas team. How many folks? He's like 220. And they said, oh, like almost, almost a laugh. It was like, well, whether it's Mercedes or whatever, you know, they've got, they've got that many people on vacation. Like, <laughs> you know, it's a good so, line. You, you heard more than one person say we have to do more with less. And Hamilton's with Mercedes, Verstappen's with Red Bull. You know, they they, they both spend wildly. So uh, and if this next part, Eben, sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am. You know, full disclosure, <laughs> I, I am not the biggest. But like, just to set it up, I, only once before in the 71 year history have we had the exact same points getting in. Yes, we've had one, too, but there's always been a point separation. And here, this is a little something I I took from the ESPN story. Maybe that was AP, but I saw it on ESPN. That there is a way where Hamilton could finish behind Verstappen. Because right now, uh, I believe Hamilton has won one more race. Right, if that's if that's the way it is, should okay. I check to make sure I don't want to give I don't want to give anybody some bad information here. So hold on, I'm going to give. Here, you're let me reading, see. Here but you're also not sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, so Verstappen, here it is. Verstappen has nine victories to Hamilton's eight. All right. So if they tie, Verstappen wins by virtue of what's called the countback rule. You know, that's all. That's okay. only fair. He he won more races, right? That's fair. However, the way that F1 hands out its points, that if Hamilton finishes ninth, right. And Verstappen's 10th, there's a bonus point for fastest lap that he could still finish behind, but get the bonus point and therefore still be tied and win the championship. Fascinating. Amazing! I love this. I'm rooting this for feels that like scenario. Explaining
0: American football to someone in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. But I am yeah, rooting
1: 10-minute overtime, which they can
0: tie. But then the second tiebreaker for playoffs is point to point, head to head in their own division. Like it's just a just a mess of tiebreaker uh, scenarios.
1: But I absolutely want this to be. Uh, that's the scenario I want. I want them to know that you know Verstappen's got the one more, so he only needs to tie, and he's like. Uh, two hundredths of a second slower on the fastest lap for the thing, and then that last one, like forget it. But it doesn't matter if he wins or loses. Like they're so far ahead of everybody, he just needs to win that fastest lap. And, and you got like, Hamilton looking to block him at every turn. Uh, that to me, this this has some drama. I, I mean, I want to see it. I'm excited. And,
0: and we should mention F1 owned by Liberty Media, the same yeah. group that owns the the World Series champion uh, Atlanta Braves. Quite a uh, quite a few month run for the sports assets within that, within that portfolio.
1: All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Sashnik on Twitter at Soshnik. Our social media editor is the aforementioned core Veltman. She likes it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sporticast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?